0: of decision. My name is Lou Moore, and tonight, once again, we're privileged to have with us J.R. Nyquist. Jeff Nyquist is a writer who's written for Epic Times. He's written for Newsmax, Sierra Times, other publications of note, and he is a prolific writer. He blogs frequently at jrnyquist.blog. He also has books available at amazon.com. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you, Lou, for having me. So Jeff, in the first program, I know you are doing a series now, audios and videos, which by the way, folks, those are also uh, can not be had at uh, jrnyquist.blog. And you're calling that friends and enemies, but I- I'm kind of lifting that a little bit because it's the same topic that I'm exploring with you. And specifically, we started last week with the odd situation we had at the so-called end of the Cold War and the celebration that particularly Republican supporters of Ronald Reagan had about uh, the end of that, of the Cold War, but yet it wasn't quite so. So so we talked about the USSR at that point and then Russia and, and Vladimir Putin. I want to move tonight to uh, talking about the relationship between the USSR previously and Russia today, and China in kind of the context of the world communist movement that goes back to Lenin. So do you want to just take it from there, Jeff?
1: Yeah, well, I I guess uh, a lot of people don't know the history of of China going back to Sun Yat-sen forming the Republic of China at the end of, of Imperial China. And of course, the United States was initially helpful there. They had the, the party that Sun Yat-sen was associated with, was the Nationalist Party of China. And, and General Chiang Kai-shek ended up taking over the leadership of Nationalist China. And what's interesting is that with Lenin's death in 1924, Stalin's decision, and it, it might have been Lenin, Lenin concurred, uh, but he, he was very ill at the end of his life. They decided to support the Republic of China, the nationalists. So surprisingly, the communists supported the nationalists in China at first. So much so that Sun Yat's or Chiang Kai-shek's son went to the United, went to the USSR to get his education. But General Chang had toured the USSR, realized what communism was, realized what he was allied with, and decided, oh my gosh, these people are dangerous and they're bad. And I need to get away from Stalin. So, and he realized that the communists in his own Nationalist Party at that time included the communists as a wing of the Nationalist Party, which Mao was a part of, I might say Tung, and he decided to purge them all at once. So, so Chang turned against Stalin and the communists and of course expelled the communists out of the Nationalist Party. as what began the Long March, where the communists went and, and grabbed everything they could, and they marched into the north where they could receive support from the Soviet Union. And of course, at this point, Stalin was greatly disillusioned, although he took uh, Chiang Kai-shek's son hostage, so to speak, and, and it... John Sounds like a Stalin-like uh, move, right? Yeah, it was Yeah. It was a while before Chiang got to see his son again. And of course, there was a civil war. Of course, between the communists in the north, and they were in a, like a mountain retreat. They were in a a relatively northern, more isolated part of China, where they could control some land and defend themselves. China is quite mountainous, spotted by rivers, so it's it's a difficult country to wage war in. Uh, That is, it favors the defender. And of course, what happened in 1937, the Japanese ended up, after the Marco Polo Bridge incident, Imperial Japan, Invaded China. Now they had invaded, I think, in 1931, Manchuria, which they were competing with the Soviet Union for influence in. And of course, the Soviets saw the Japanese as a major threat. But the Soviets, uh, the Soviets believed that the Chinese invasion of, of, I, I mean, the Japanese invasion of China was a gift, because then they could get the nationalists to unite again with the communists to fight the Japanese invader, and they could use the civil war, you know, the the uh, the sort of staying of the civil war to fight the Japanese is a way to further infiltrate the nationalists in China and to establish Mao's position. Sure. So this is sort of how the situation developed with China. And of course, as we all know, World War II eventually happened, the, the Japanese... This is an interesting thing. There's a book called Operation Snow, written by an American who's married to a Japanese woman who really looked into Pearl Harbor. And of course, he looked into some of the Memoirs of the old Soviet spy masters from World War II. One of them had bragged about using the the Undersecretary of the Treasury, uh, Harry Dexter White, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, to frame certain cables to Japan in a humiliating way when we were embargoing them, trying to get them to to to, to make a peace deal in China. That that sort of led them to attack Pearl Harbor. Because the, the Japanese generals wanted to attack the Soviet Union when Hitler did in 1941. But the Japanese admirals and other elements of the Japanese economy said, look, we need to get the oil in Indonesia. The, the Americans have the Philippines. They're supporting China. We need to attack Pearl Harbor to neutralize the American fleet so we can grab the resources we need in the South. And of course, this was the ultimate course. America's unreasonable us what they perceived as a, our, a, our intransigence. And our demands led the faction that wanted war with america to win this is what stalin wanted and of course mao too so as the war developed then the soviet union didn't get attacked on two sides we were fighting a two-fronted war against the japanese and the germans and italians the russians were only fighting a one-fronted war against the germans uh and and so uh this this evolved to stalin's advantage he was able to get to berlin and then at uh, his agents in the U.S. government, this is my interpretation now. Uh, really, the Japanese were trying to surrender from like January 1945, and we had some clever people here who understood this: that if we allowed the emperor to stay, they would they would surrender on terms. This was delayed until Potsdam, where we ultimately laid down the ultimatum to Japan, where they didn't have to surrender unconditionally; they could keep the emperor. But unfortunately, the message didn't reach the Japanese in time, it, it and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened. But the big event was the Soviet Union invaded Manchuria, destroyed the Japanese forces there, handed all their equipment over to Mao, and started to support Mao in a renewed civil war between the communists and the nationalists.
0: So, Jeff, I'm going to stop you there because you're, you're jumping a little bit ahead of at least some of the stuff I, I was hoping you'd cover. So when after Pearl Harbor, we declared war on Japan, Germany declared war on us, we're in this war, we're in a two-front war, as you said, Uh, uh, the Soviet Union is not. But wouldn't it be fair to say that this changed the whole dynamic in terms of how we treated communists around the world? Uh, I mean, we immediately embraced Stalin as Uncle Joe, our great ally in this uh, noble cause. And didn't that spill over into Asia in terms of favoritism and cover for Soviet ages in our government that were pushing Mao the whole time? I mean, is that fair to
1: say? Uh, yeah, you had the Institute. what was it, the Institute for Pacific Relations or something like that? Yeah, I was it, at a the Com- ICR. it was a it was a communist think tank, basically totally infiltrated, giving false information. They were painting General Chiang Kai-shek, and the nationalist says, well, this is familiar, totally corrupt, right? You hear that about the Ukrainians today. But whoever the Moscow wants to get rid of you, you label them as corrupt and not worth supporting You're giving support to. And, of course, Chiang Kai-shek was smart. He knew that when the war was over, the, the Civil War would renew. He understood the communists well enough. But, unfortunately, the Roosevelt and then the Truman administration... Did not understand that. And of course, they sent uh, uh, generals, uh, the general uh, old vinegar, uh, uh, vinegar Joe Stillwell, yeah. to, to basically liaison with Chang Kai-shek and he hated Chang Kai-shek. He called him, he called him Peanut and said he wouldn't fight. And, and this was toxic. This poisoned our relationship and on one level with Chang Kai-shek, it led him to distrust us as allies. He also had treachery from the French side. Allow me a book, one of the top French agents about how they were able to manipulate the situation just below China and, and, uh, in Vietnam. Of course, because the Russians had invaded Manchuria, in it, 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 in it gave them, they got acquired North Korea, which later became the Korean War. They got springboards from which to attack us and our allies in the, in the Far East. So this was, this was pretty serious. And of course, uh, the Roosevelt administration was full of agents, and, and you'll hear, hear all these names. I mean, Harry Dexter White, Harry Hopkins was big on this. There's There was uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, suspected George Marshall, the chief American general, who had kind of lied about where he was on the day Pearl Harbor was attacked, uh, then lied again to Congress, you know, in 1945 when they had hearings on Pearl Harbor again. But, but nonetheless, Truman sent Marshall to China to basically try to make peace between the communists and nationalists. Of course, this is always a bad idea. The communists should always be wiped out wherever they are. They should be removed because if you make peace with them, they will cheat you and they will find, a, they will end run you and they will use that peace to their advantage. And of course, this is exactly what they did. Mao was arming himself and we we had an agreement. Stalin agreed he wasn't going to supply Mao with weapons. So if we didn't supply General Chang and the nationalists, well, we didn't supply them, but Stalin broke his word. Yeah, I didn't that, that at first. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse me, Jeff. But the, the, the other thing that I
0: wasn't really aware of when I was younger, when I was in college learning a lot of this stuff, yeah, there's a lot of talk about the Yalta Agreement where Alger Hiss is a Soviet spy, is at the side of Frank by Roosevelt about half the time. And, and And the primary focus of that agreement was Europe. And and the settlement after the war, which of course was a disaster for anybody who lived in Eastern Europe, but the other part of this agreement that uh, people don't focus on as much is the fact that we agreed to give eight of material and and cash uh, to the USSR to go uh, for their entry the war against Japan. Yeah, but it really did till the very end. Yeah, a lot of that material, my understanding is, ended up in Mao's hands.
1: Yeah, it did. Well, we were giving enormous at least, We gave enormous resources to the USSR. I mean, they're to this day they're using some of those resources. I understand some of the transport planes we gave them they're still using, uh, because they're so they were so mill, well made. Things made in America back in that those days was really well made. And and so of course, yeah, they uh, there were all kinds of advantages. Also, if if we credit Major Jordan's diaries. We were giving them the material to make an atomic bomb, in addition to Klaus Fuchs, maybe Oppenheimer, and certainly the Rosenbergs, giving things to the Soviets that helped them to know how to make one. So that that four years after we had the atomic bomb, they had the atomic bomb which was a serious problem and is a problem for us to this day as, as Vladimir Putin threatens us with nuclear war, the Chinese do too, because it meant that China would eventually get the bomb. They got the bomb in 1964 with the help of the Russians. So mm-hmm. this, this, and of course, in 1949, the, the Chinese civil war ended in victory of the communists. So Mao and the communists won the civil war, General Chiang Kai-shek withdrew the remnant of his forces to the island of Taiwan which was then called Formosa. Taiwan was, became the Republic of China versus the People's Republic of China. And we recognized Taiwan as a Republic of China for many years until Nixon went to China and recognized the Republic of China. China will not allow any country to have relations with it that, that, that also recognizes the Republic of China, Taiwan.
0: Yeah, so so that, that, that leaves us in the very odd position now uh, being somewhat dependent on Taiwan uh, for a chip manufacturer, but yet technically we don't even recognize they exist.
1: Because- right. We don't recognize them as an independent country. We officially recognize them as part of the People's Republic of China, Yeah, which is a formality. A lot of, there's some hypocrisy there on the part of American statesmen, but just as the Roosevelt administration had Soviet agents who were helping China, communist China, we have the same situation today. I mean, the connections between our present Secretary of State and our President, and so on—they've got connections to China that are, that that should be investigated. Quite frankly, yeah,
0: so the, the head of the CIA was super involved with China as the head of the
1: Carnegie Endowment, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a very it's a very bad uh, practice, and we've we've really gone soft. I mean, every attempt, even in the State Department in the nineteen forties, there was a problem. And it was, it all goes back to they really wanted, China was a big prize in World War II that the communists won, along with Eastern Europe. Uh, they w- they would have liked to have the whole of Germany, but they only got the Eastern part uh, as much as they could get George Marshall to help them by slowing down Eisenhower's armies. They they would have liked us to invade Japan uh, because that would have slaughtered millions of Americans and soured us on future interventions like in Vietnam and, and Korea and, and then they could have had Japan all to themselves too. But but these were the kind of strategic considerations that the communists were always thinking of. And of course, once they got the bomb in 1949, what happened the following year, 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea. So as soon as Stalin had the bomb, an act of military aggression. And we know now that Kim Il Sung, who was a Soviet military officer when he went to become dictator of North Korea, he was serving in the Soviet army, and he was was told by Stalin go ahead and invade. And Stalin had equipped him with T thirty-four tanks and Russian artillery and so on. And South Korea was, was pretty much battered. They were holding on to a small chunk of the southern part of their peninsula when US Marines arrived and started fighting back. And then you had Incheon and you had this whole Korean war scenario unfold where when we had when we when we ultimately MacArthur made this bold move by invading behind the North Korean army and trapping parts of it and routing them. The Chinese then intervened. I think it was November of 1950 and the Chinese volunteer army came in and the Chinese actually lost the largest number of casualties of any of those fighting in the Korean war. They lost over a million men and their invasion was they used infiltration tactics. They came through terrain. Nobody could come through. They didn't care about logistics. They didn't care if their men froze or starved. It was very cold that late fall, uh, hard snow and, and ice. And they uh, trapped a lot of American units, took a lot of American prisoners, wiped out the Turkish regiment that was fighting there, um, and of course, drove us back to below the 38th parallel and uh, where the, the war kind of stalemated, but continued for a while. So this was, this was the, so we were fighting communist China. People, my dad's in the Korean War, were fighting Chinese communists. So as if we'd never fought them, you know, I mean, we have.
0: And just to punch away the idea that Mao was not that concerned about tactics or, uh, you know, detaining his military or, or keeping them from having heavy casualties. People believe a book like, yeah, Young Chang's Mao the Unknown Story, which I think is about the best biography of his. About him, in they interviewed a thousand people, I think, and put this thing together. They said that, that Mao was saying, I, I hope we lose 30 million man because these a lot of people they put in there going to the front where people they were shaky or else you know they were just having to feed them and they didn't have that much food so according to some people he wanted the the slaughter of his own people and and that just that just killed us because they just kept coming and wave after wave after wave in these battles and they pushed them all the way back uh, from from the Yalu River from the Chinese border all the way to halfway you know halfway across the country where the line is now if I if I have that history correct
1: yeah the 38th parallel was sort of the original border and they, the the uh, they pushed us even below that the Chinese did but they got stuck uh, when we finally came up with enough troops to to sort of stop them then they their mass attacks were not once we had a solid line their mass attacks weren't effective anymore but then it was very difficult for us. Uh, Korea is a hilly country, and so it's not a good country for tanks. Uh, over the, over every hill, it's very easy for the Chinese to hide troops behind hills to counterattack. And it's a, a lot of artillery. The Chinese used mortars well and machine guns, and that's basically what they needed. And they didn't care if it was a disproportionate rate of attrition. Really, Mao's brutality really shows through in that. And Mao was. In terms of his regard for human life, he was a psychopath.
0: Yeah, that's the first thing. Uh, it's interesting you say that, Jeff. When I read this biography, and I was already very familiar with Mao, but I mean, he comes off in it like Jim Jones or something. I mean, like little Brave's cold yeah. leader, but unfortunately, he has the largest country on earth to experiment with.
1: Well, yes, there's a tra- Chinese tradition. There's, you know, when you discuss communism in, in the context of Russia and China and other countries, you have to take into account, and this is what confuses a lot of people, the Chinese history and Russian history, because, and the communists are very well aware of this, Mao Zedong would call his form of Marxism, Leninism, you know, communism with Chinese characteristics. And uh, and of course, Lenin was sophisticated. The, the communists became, with Lenin, politically very sophisticated in their approach to politics. They had to acknowledge the national element and... Uh, uh, this is something both Stalin and Mao did. Stalin called World War II the great patriotic war. And you'd think, well, wasn't he a communist? Didn't he want to fight for communism? He realized that very few people were true believing communists, even in the Soviet Union. That most people were just normal people who loved their country uh, and didn't particularly care for the ideology. Stalin was a realist who knew this. Mao also knew this.
0: Yeah, I, I think yeah, isn't that, that was the source besides the personalities and power grabbing and whatnot. This this idea of revolution in one country, which is what I think you're talking about, that Stalin and that later Mao believed in was at odds with Trotsky, who uh, was the next successor.
1: It was, yeah, it was at odds with Marx a little bit. See, it was communism in one country. See, Marx, if you read Marx, Marx says, well, you can't have communism anywhere unless it is victorious everywhere. So, the mm-hmm. communist revolution has to sweep the globe before you can have real communism. So, they handled it in two ways. If you read Soviet textbooks, ideology, and of course, ideology is just the line that they give. They don't use that word. They don't apply that word because uh, to themselves, because Marx taught that, that his ideas, and Lenin taught it too, are scientific. They're not ideology. They're science. Mm-hmm. So... But they uh, they had two ways of dealing with this. One was to say that look, we haven't we have to start the revolution. We have to have a base for the revolution, and 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 so the the Russia was the base for the revolution worldwide. So you could have a a Marxist movement, communism in one country, but it wasn't uh, economically or socially communism. They the, the USSR was Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. They started to talk about this, like, well, we have state capitalism as an economic system and we're building socialism. But once the revolution just smashes the world market everywhere, then we're going to have communism. But that's in the distant future. Even Marx said, you're going to have a hundred years, you might have a hundred years of world civil war before you're going to have communism with you know huge numbers of people murdered or killed. So uh, and Engels had said, you know, you're going to annihilate whole races and classes of people in these wars. So Lenin, well, well, that's, that's yeah, that's what we're up against. And of course, so you had uh, first, there was communism in one country in uh, in Russia, and then you had China in the Eastern Bloc country. So you had what they, they like to call it, believe it or not, we called it the communist bloc, but they called it in their... Uh, books, the socialist bloc. They didn't sure. use the term communist bloc. That's our term. They called sure. themselves the the socialist bloc. So any sure. Soviet military book, a strategy book, or political book that they you'll hear that reference. And of course, it was the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. Kind of interesting. No. And of course, yeah. Go ahead.
0: So. Uh... We lost China to the Reds, quote unquote. Uh, That you know, the the communists, Mao, trained in Moscow, took over China, became the dictator. They were very involved, very impactful in Korea. So then we come up to the period begin the beginning of the decade, 1960, 1961, and. uh, the smart people started telling us on on the three television networks that there was some kind of split that was going on that, that communism wasn't monolithic, which of course, if that was true, had all kinds of implications in terms of how how we should react to it. So, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Well, in in late 1961, there was the it was the first major uh, conference of communist parties worldwide. I think it was the 20th Party uh, Congress or whatever. Uh, it was held in Moscow. Deng Xiaoping came and represented the Chinese, interestingly. Um, and, of course, the Chinese picked certain arguments with the Russians, and there was a, a kind of a little bit of a dispute that erupted that everybody kind of noticed. That's kind of strange, the Chinese. And, of course, and Enlai was making sort of comments that were curious. And so people started to talk about it. A break or a split. And of course, there was a lot of debate. There were argument over whether this was real, what did this mean? But the Russians and Chinese played it up more or less. What we had is in 1961, we had a defector named Anatoly Galitsyn in December 61, about the time that this split appeared and people found out about it. Uh, and he uh, talked about uh, attending a lecture by KGB General Shelopin, the head of the KGB, talking about the fake Sino-Soviet split saying that the, the genuine split between Tito and Stalin, the West had rushed in to help Tito. Tito was a communist dictator of Yugoslavia. And they were shocked in Moscow that the West would help a communist country. If that, But if that communist country had a dispute with the Soviet Union, they were willing to do it. They thought, oh my gosh, who would we have a split with? Well, the big problem was developing China. You had all these... Manpower was the most populous country in the world at the time. And how could we develop the resources of China have a split? Now, this wasn't easy to do because China was still, Mao was not finished reshaping China. He still had the Great Leap Forward to, and, and the Cultural Revolution to finish. And there was a lot to strengthen China so that a a, any kind of move towards bourgeois capitalism would not cause the Communist Party to lose power. They had to consolidate. And so that's what they did. They, they did this consolidation in preparation. But at the same time, they were playing on this. You have different documents. For example, you, you have China publishing propaganda pamphlets like the New Tsars was one of them, where they attacked the Soviet Union as being really bourgeois and having abandoned revolutionary values. Uh, they would have this war of words, and then they, they sort of divided the world where they started competing, where they were competing in different regions of the world. For example, in the Indian sub- subcontinent, Russia supported India and China supported Pakistan because that had all been India under Britain, and they, they split into Pakistan and India when India got its independence, and they fought a number of wars. India and Pakistan have fought. So there you had the Chinese and Russians facing off. And sort of dividing and conquering. They call the a scissor strategy, where they would control both sides of a conflict by pretending to be in conflict with each other. Um, the evidence that they were playing this Nevin Gusak, my friend, has written a, a book with uh, hundreds and hundreds of footnotes showing inconsistencies in this picture of Russia and China being at odds in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But you had this curious event, the conspiracy and death of Lin Biao. Lin Biao was the head of the People's Liberation Army under Mao. He was with Madame Mao and Mao. He was one of the leaders of the Cultural Revolution. And his health wasn't very good, but for some reason, he tried allegedly to overthrow Mao in 1971. And when this attempt to overthrow Mao failed, he fled in his uh, jet aircraft with his protégés to the Soviet Union. But he was shot down over Mongolia. Now, here's the punchline. When I was debriefing with the defector, Colonel Stanislav Lunev, in 1998, I asked him about the conspiracy and death of Lin Biao, and Lunev was spoke Mandarin, had worked in China with the Russian general staff, for the Russian general staff, and he knew one of the officers who'd been present at the plane crash of Lin Biao's plane in Mongolia, and I said, well, what do you know about that? He said, well, I know that everyone on the plane was murdered before they were put on the plane. Nice. Right, so I said, well, this is interesting because this whole fabrication was used to convince Nixon that there was all virtually war between the Soviet Union and China because part of Lin Biao was supposedly conspiring with the Soviet military to overthrow Mao, to start a phony border war between the People's Liberation Army and the Soviet Army, where Mao would go in his bunker and be gassed, right by the by by Lin Biao, the head of the People's Liberation Army. Then he would take over, and he would then you know unite china with the soviet union yeah. so so this this presented mao as independent but if lin biao's if the whole incident of lin biao's rebellion against mao and working with the soviet was fabricated if the crash he said what the what he knew from his friend colonel liyev said that the plane had been flown with the dead bodies in it over mongolia and they crashed it the pilot uh, jumped out of the plane with a parachute was picked up on the border they had determined that and I, I asked Colonel Luna if I said, well, since the whole world believed that Lin Biao had had this shocking rebellion against Mao in conspiring with the Soviet military, and here he went and he fled to the Soviet Union, which was pointing a finger of blame to the why would he flee to the Soviet Union if he wasn't conspiring with him? But that whole thing was faked. Why didn't the Soviet Union publish the facts about the crash of Lin Biao's plane to exonerate themselves? Why did they do that? They, and they didn't. And of course, Luna looked at me. and said, "I'd never thought about that before." And it, what it what it demonstrates is there was collusion in the conspiracy of Lin Biao uh, in this matter. And I think what happened was the border incidents between Russia and China were faked, and Lin Biao had been involved in faking it. So they just, and probably U.S. signals intelligence had picked up something that was phony about those border incidents. But Lin Biao, working with the Soviet generals, to fake a border incident was then explained as being an attempt to overthrow Mao, you see. Sure. So I'm able to kill multiple birds with one stone.
0: Trying to cheat here, Jeff, while you're, while you're going through that. Now, I have that, that book in front of me I just referenced by Young Chang and John Halliday, Mao, The Unknown Story. And somewhere in this book, and I cannot find it at the moment, but uh, they referred to the fact that this split, at minimum, was overblown and possibly a strategic deception, and then yeah, that's a fairly mainstream book. I mean, a lot of the people listening to this may think this is crazy.
1: Well, no, it is. but but yeah, the and, more detail you know, yeah, Halliday's book uh, and and other author, uh, that is a really good book because they go into such detail, and when they go into the detail of what happened to Lin Biao, they find that there's no there's all these lies whenever they're doing a uh, deception. You have like three, four, five different versions of what happened, and this is what we have with the conspiracy and death of, Lib- of Biao. And this is this immediately is a red flag showing there's some kind of deception. What's interesting is that right after this happened, who shows up in Beijing but Henry Kissinger? And then I mean, we that's got,
0: the next place yeah. I wanted to take our story here. I mean, if the Soviets and the Chinese are at odds, at, practically at war, uh, some guy like uh, Kissinger is able to tell somebody like Nixon, who, that, you know, we ought to be getting involved in this and playing them off against each other.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There was, a, in April of 1971, there was a, an incident when when Nixon had convinced, I mean, uh, Kissinger had convinced Nixon of this opening to China idea to trying it. There was an incident where one of our intelligence gathering planes was very violently pursued by Chinese warplanes. They really wanted to get that thing. And why? Because I think we had a spy in China who had, who was relating things about this, uh, the the People's Liberation Army that were inconsistent with China being at war, going to war with Russia, with the you know. So I think the conspiracy and death of Lin Biao story had to be concocted in a certain way to explain these facts. You will find this referred to in, I think, both Nixon and Kissinger's memoirs of the period. 'Cause I, I went years ago and I, I read both of the passages regarding this. And and there was um and it was really hard to explain because why would the Chinese do something like that at a critical moment when they were really trying to get Exxon to come to, to China? It was really to their advantage. And and of course it's it's fascinating how things developed from there because we we kind of accepted this because there were and this is what i was told by people close to to billionaires and, and the wealthy in america is that they really wanted to believe that china could be uh, invested in that we could have access to their labor and their resources and that that we could sell to them it'd be the biggest market in the world and that this would make us all prosperous to trade with china and it would it would signal the end of communism because china would become capitalist and and i think it was very naive because the, the Russians had already done this kind of thing with the N.E.P. under Lenin in the 1920s. Where Jeff, you the want to explain a little bit?
0: Excuse me, Jeff. Uh, N.E.P., tell the folks what,
1: what... It was the new economic policy of Lenin adopted in about 1921 that really pushed in 1922. And the idea was that they were giving up. They We don't know how to run a communist economy. And so we have to turn to state capitalism. So what they did is they opened the country to investment from the West. And they said, look, you know, as long as the Rush, a Russian partner controls 51% of a company, Westerners can come in and, and invest and in to build. And the Rockefellers and the Harrimans and everybody came in there to build it up. And what, what, what really made it credible to people was they had this really successful counterintelligence operation called Operation Trust headed by Felix Dzerzhinsky, the head of the Czech of the secret police, which ultimately became known as the KGB. Uh, what they did is they, they created a fake pro zarist organization, the Monarchist Alliance of Central Russia, which at time, at one time was a genuine organization, but they captured the leaders, turned them into double agents, and they, they sent their agents in Europe saying, look, the trust you know, has infiltrated the secret police, we've infiltrated the army and the Communist Party, we're taking over the country. People don't believe in communism anymore. Even Lenin says they don't know how to make communism work. So, you know, and this, basically, they sold this, the idea of the trust. It was called the trust because this group met in a bank in in Moscow. Uh, They sold it to all the Western intelligence services, and they all believed it. There were a few skeptics. Allegedly, Sidney Riley, the famous British agent, didn't believe it and was warning people that this is wrong. And uh, Savinkin went back. Certain white generals went back to Russia and ended up, you know, falling out of windows or dying. They basically used it to destroy. They used it to destroy the uh, the 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 white diaspora anti-communist movement because they de- they demoralized them, and they they demoralized them by by first making them believe that they were winning, and then they showed them, ha ha. In 1929, one of the leaders of the trust defected to Finland and told the whole story. We controlled the trust from the beginning, and it was always our operation. We knew everything you were doing, and it allowed Russia to know every single Western agent in the Soviet Union that the KGB knew. So it was incredibly so, successful.
0: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, no, thank you for that. And, you know, Jeff, I don't think that that, that tale, and at some point, maybe i get you to tell the whole thing in more detail. That is such a critical event and set of events in history because it shows the lengths that they would go to in the communist realms of Russia and their ability, even early on, to pull off amazing disinformation. Well, we're talking about later a a Sino Soviet split that maybe didn't exist. And then the biggest deception of the three of those. The uh, the idea that the Soviet Union is no more and communism is no more and, and Putin is a Democrat and all that.
1: Well, they've done fake splits within the Communist Party here in the U.S. They did a fake split at the end of the Cold War uh, to try to uh, then send people out to get into other socialist and left-wing organizations to broaden their power and to also enter the Democratic Party with more people they they did of course when the you know in 1943 i think it was may of 43 Stalin dissolved the common turn but said no we're not we're not going to subvert the west anymore well that was a lie they held up
0: to yeah if i'm going to stop me again i'm going to stop you just because i think a lot of folks listening to this are not going to know what the common turn was if you just-
1: it was the communist international and it was a body uh, centered in Moscow that, that coordinated all the communist parties and all the subversive operations worldwide. It was so, very no,
0: revolutionary, was it not? I mean, that, yeah. we're hiding the fact they were trying to take over the world.
1: It was for, for inspiring, for arranging communist revolution worldwide wherever they could. They worked in the 30s to cause a, a communist takeover in Brazil, for example. They, uh, they they, had a lot of agitation in the United States. In Great Britain, they orchestrated strikes when they could. Uh, and, of course, they were active in, in Germany and Central Europe. So they were, they were all over the globe, and they were in the Arab world, the Red sheikhs, you know, which to this day, more recently, when Trump was president, the Saudi government went after some of them. But there were connections made between the communists and people in the Arab world going back to that period so they were infiltrating everywhere they were going into Africa they were going into Asia and of course China as we mentioned before Stalin's policy which was considered an error was to not support the communists but the nationalists who the communists had sidled up to so it, it's a complicated the, the strategy is always complicated and, and always within the communist circles controversial but but Stalin was the guy in charge uh, ended up when Lenin died Stalin had ended up being the General Secretary of the Communist Party, and it was the party where the power was, not in the Soviet government. So for example, Stalin did not hold the rank of premier or a prime minister until you get close to World War II or during World War II when he held that rank, but he, he didn't need the rank. He, he had his puppets, his party agents who controlled the government and held different offices.
0: So, so I I'm looking at the clock here, Jeff. I think our time is growing short. I know you had another commitment. list. let's tie up some loose ends. So, uh, Nixon and Kissinger operated on the idea that there was a Sino-Soviet split. Yes. Nixon opens does the opening to China, and before too long, uh, you know, they're cleaning our clock on trade and becoming very wealthy and spending a lot of it on their military. I go
1: yeah. Mao dies around 1977, 78, you have the Deng Xiaoping coming in, it's glorious to be rich and you have Carter opening trade with China more and more. And then Reagan is supposedly using the Chinese against the Soviets in the 80s. Uh, All the time, China is developing and learning how to trade, learning how to do capitalism until we get to the massive industrial capacity of China today which we have this major problem we have made this problem ourselves yes absolutely
0: so jeff i'd like to continue this conversation and of course we're coming to the present day i want to now get back to the present day the next time we speak on this subject because all of a sudden russia China our allies gee how did that happen yeah. and you know it's just ridiculous that people don't even draw a modicum a connection between these two entities that both were a birth through the communist revolution. Final thoughts on your part.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, Galitzen had warned when he warned about this fake Sino-Soviet split in the 60s that the ultimate strategy was when, when we had been disarmed and, and had thought that these countries were divided, they would suddenly unite them into one clenched fist and the balance of power would be shifted in their favor. And I think we're saying that they're trying to play that out now.
0: Yeah. No, no. Absolutely. So, Jeff, really appreciate your insight on these issues, many of which are completely obscured uh, by the mainstream media, et cetera. I want to ask you. You mentioned this the last time uh, we got together. Uh, I, I want to finish this whole conversation of Russia and China, but you mentioned Latin America, which man so important to us and. Uh, the Average American, not very well informed on Latin America, and some of that is deliberate misinformation. But uh, I'm inviting you to come back and have a conversation about Latin America, an area you know a lot about and have had some firsthand experience with some of the politics there.
1: Yeah, I would be glad to. Thank you. Great.
0: Uh, Jeff Nyquist, blog. Books are available that he wrote on Amazon. I highly suggest you read all of them. And my name is Lou Moore. This is the Hour of Decision on News for America on the News for America platform. And we're going to continue this discussion about our enemies around the world in the near future. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. And they have called me to dinner, so I have to go.
0: Now, I thought I heard Greg right in the background. So Yeah. Anyway, Jeff, Okay. thanks so much. Sorry about the problem at the beginning, but uh, I just enjoyed this so much. I hope you will okay. can-
1: all right, good. Well, please send me the link. Have you have the, you posted the first one yet?
0: No, I have not, and uh, I'm wrangling with my webmaster. But it's one of the things I like about this. We're going to have a series, but it's what they call time copy. I mean, yeah. it doesn't have to be out tomorrow, but I, I can oh. get you. I can get you a Dropbox link. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, whenever. No, just whenever it. Rock-